1: Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jonathan Kaufman. He's a professor. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what we're going to talk about today is actually really, really important. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
0: Absolutely. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, around Yale University.
1: Okay. Very cool. You went to university. What did you take and why? Um, as
0: everyone says to me, I was sort of a professional student for okay. a long time. I think um, it all began sort of at the beginning, which I was born with cerebral palsy. And so that sort of shaped my life okay. in many ways. It sort of influenced, I mean, the sort of the actual Diagnosis was a right hemiparesis, which just means that I had some, I guess, limited mobility on the right side of my body. But that sort of influenced everything for me. And I said to myself, this is an area that I wanted to sort of focus on and think about it from both a policy end of it, an academic end. But I was always interested in business. And I was interested in really the idea of work and the culture of work and how that influ- how that was sort of influenced through a disability lens. And so for me, it was sort of exploration because there wasn't anything like that that existed. So sure. I had to make it up as I went along. And so... You know, starting out at college, I started out at Sarah Lawrence College in New York, and then I got a fellowship to go to Oxford University. So I went abroad, nice. um, went to Oxford University. Then I did a dual master's at the University of Chicago in public policy and psychiatric social work. And while there, um, there were two things that happened. I studied at. Uh, I was at a think tank at the um, what was then called the um, Institute for Cultural An- Anthropology. And as well as I did a degree in public policy where I met the Obamas Mm -hmm. and he was, he was my professor prior to going into the running for president or even running for Senator, which, um, and that sort of, that story begins has a, has an element in my life later. And then from there I went to the, I went to Columbia university to study, um, applied anthropology. And while I was a student there, um, Obama decided to run for president, and slightly after graduation, I ended up working for as a special advisor to the president on disability and diversity policy. So that sort of shaped the way I look at things through both a political lens. And then after that, I said, okay, I love the fact of the applied work, I always thought I wanted to be academic. But the applied work was interesting, but I was interested in working with corporations, government agencies, educational institutions, um, and really thinking about this from a creative way and thinking about how do we think about disability, not from the traditional model, but think about it in the context of, of corporate life and thinking about it, how we Understand it through the lens of entrepreneurship, how we understand it is through the lens of creating new products and services, new businesses and that's sort of where my my life has taken me and and I think you know as a and I still have one foot in the door in academics, and that's sort of within you know I've been teaching at business schools um, as well as occupational health psychology. Um, looking at sort of the culture of work as well as health, um, corp- um, health and wellness issues within um, corporate life.
1: Interesting. So, I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the stuff that you teach because you sure. come from it obviously from a, a unique angle, right? And and I'm mm-hmm. curious to talk about what do you talk about and and what do you teach as a professor.
0: I mean, I think that there's sort of there there are two elements. One is an area which I sort of as a curriculum called the anthropology of leadership. Okay, and in a sense, it's focused on the idea of how do we look at diversity and inclusion um, through a lens uh, um, of culture, but more importantly, how does one create leaders through this? And I have always looked at everything through that lens, and more specifically through the lens of disability. So, um, and then the other component is occupational health psychology, which is corporate health and wellness. And most of my students at that point, because I helped develop an MA and PhD program um, for Turo University worldwide, um, and at that point I was teaching uh, mostly management consultants. Because okay. management consultants were always interested in going into organizations and how do I deal with issues of stress management issues, um, creative thinking, um, to a variety of other areas that um, companies need to think about when developing a strong corporate culture. And, and that's sort of where I look at my role. Um, most people sort of come to me and say, okay, we have a problem. So my goal is, in essence, to solve that problem. It's a puzzle. And that's always been the rule. And because I look at... And because one of the interesting things is, I always say that, look, being born with a disability, we've by necessity, we're always problem solvers. And that is, to me, the, the biggest issue is, I think that the lived experience of disability has a valuable role and and can be a valuable tool as a business strategy. Most people think about it as, okay, well, we have to hire employees with disabilities, which is exceedingly important, and the value proposition is critical. But what people don't realize is that the lived experience of disability can be utilized as a tool, whether it be for large corporations, whether it be for um, startups or entrepreneurs, but it's all how they look at it. And so what I try and do is to take those lessons and apply them.
1: Okay, give me some examples for, for people listening that are maybe, sure. yeah, I think that'd be good.
0: I, I mean, I think one of the, the sort of the great lessons that we learn about in terms of application has always been in the this, in this sense of how do entrepreneurs and how do founders deal with adversity? Sure. So one of the questions we always think about is, through the lens of creative thinking, how do we we think about options? How do we think about um, finding new and and creative ways, alternatives to think about a problem? Um, that is, and it's always through the lens, I mean, the sort of focus has always been from a design model, design thinking. And that, sure. that sort of goes hand in hand with the lived experience of disability is because that is part and parcel to understanding how we live. Sure. And I think that we use, I think, practical lessons and sort of we, I mean, I I, I utilize stories. I mean, again, it's always based on narratives and how do these narratives play a role in one's personal life? Because if you personalize it, you're able to create um a feeling of connectivity. And once that connectivity is done is sort of um I think linked to the individual, then they can feel, okay, this makes sense. Um and when companies have come to me with with issues of, okay, how do I deal with um whether it be issues of stress management, whether it be issues of how do I deal with just basic anxiety. Um, Part of my training is as a a clinician. So, um, you know, I think I've taken that into executive coaching. So it isn't only just the teaching, but it's the day to day. And I think dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, these are all part and parcel to the arc of an entrepreneur. And the arc of anybody dealing with um, starting a business or running a business, imposter syndrome, and also separating oneself from their failures. And saying, you know what, your personal failures and your professional failures are not one and the same. And so it's critically important to think about how you develop a strong ego both individually as which is separate as well as within one's corporate life so uh, all of those things and and you know there's always a lot because it's it's oh uh, the work that i do is always on a case-by-case basis it's never one size fits all because everyone is an individual and because of that there isn't one Solution. And so, what we have to do is, and there's always a saying that, um, you know, a therapist said is, you know, you have to start where the person is. And we always have to start where the organization whether the, where the person is or where the organization is. And for me, um, as an anthropologist, is I'm the professional stranger. So, what I do is I go into an organization and I do what's called a corporate ethnography which is very similar to doing a psychological evaluation in many ways, is to how to understand, or SWOT analysis, which is fairly similar, um, to understand sort of those strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, um, and so on. And to figure out where can this organization, based on the culture in which or, that already exists, to develop a value-added component that can enhance, whether it be sales, whether it be productivity, so on and so forth. So there's an external and an internal component. And, and that's what I do. Um, and the other piece is always working with individuals and teams, which is much more, I would say clinically based, but executive coaching and psychotherapy, I think, are first cousins.
1: Okay, interesting. Why do you say that? I agree with you, but why do you say that?
0: I I think because there's I mean the elements are with with in psychotherapy you're really looking at psychotrauma trauma in a lot of ways okay. not always but that's the initial case but in executive coaching you're focused on really dealing with the here and now and improvement. And, the, and whether it be improvement of productivity, whether it be improvement of mental health, whether it be improvement of the corporate culture as a whole, so so to increase sales, to increase productivity, to you know, it, there's always a sort of goal or it's very goal oriented. And while there are some psychotherapeutic models that are very goal oriented, sometimes you have to to deal with some psychic traumas that are very critical in order to sort of take those next steps that one goes forward. Now what you find is within organizations that there's some deep seated problems. I wouldn't call it trauma, but pro- there are some deep seated problems within the culture itself. So how do you fix the culture so that it, uh, the organization runs smoother it, in, you can increase revenue, you can increase productivity, and so on. And that is critically important. And also, the, the issue of businesses are, are made of, uh, around people. So there are issues of, of their own egos that get in the way. So how do you deal with that? Um, as well as the development of new products and services, which is around teamwork and strategy
1: sure okay interesting so may is mental health um awareness month and you write about this a lot you're working with a bunch of people uh in the space do you want to kind of talk about why it's important because i think the more and more people that talk about it and get the awareness out there the more and more people will understand and and the people that are going through it hopefully will will seek help
0: yeah I mean, I think the the critical piece, at least from a, from a business angle, and I've been writing about this in Forbes and will continue to write about this in Forbes, sure. is the idea that founders are literally 50% more likely to be dealing with mental health issues, whether you call them invisible disabilities, whether you call it... Um, Some form of mental illness, but they are all mental health issues, whether it be dealing with anxiety, depression um, and and things related to that, even substance abuse. So when you're talking about those issues, um, particularly within the workplace and particularly dealing with entrepreneurs, it's critically important, whether you're an investor, um, a venture capitalist or or people within the, the organization itself. You have to consider what is the mantra of the organization itself? What, is the, what are the goals? And those goals can be impeded if people amongst the C-suite, sounders, and so on, are not at full capacity. And it's critical to be able to say, okay, we have healthy revenue. We have healthy goals. We are creating products and services that are of value. But if you are not, you meaning the founders and the executives of the organization, are not continually dealing with one's own self-care and self-management. Peter Drucker has written extensively, I mean, the, the sort of guru and father of modern management has has written extensively on the idea of self-care and self-management. That, and, and he sort of says, and I sort of paraphrase, but it's as critical as anything else in the business. Interesting. And, you know, people run themselves ragged, yep. yet if you're not sleeping, if you're not taking care of yourself and providing yourself truly with nourishment, whatever that may be, um, then the business as a whole, because it's an organism unto itself will fail. And so the the idea is search, is to sort of create a culture within the individuals, within the organization, within the team, that is driven by um, some real balance. And that, for me, is very critical. And and while Mental Health Awareness Month is nice, this should be really more of a reminder that this should be done consistently.
1: So I'm curious, though, because it's got to be hard, at least for certain people, to actually, first off, accept that they're dealing with something and... Mm -hmm. And then it's got to be even harder probably to get them to work towards changing their lifestyle or or get help or, or whatever they need to do to fix themselves, especially when they're super busy and if they're doing a startup or their own business or something, they might not be able to find the time, think they can't find the time. So how do you work with people to overcome that to actually get themselves well?
0: Well, I, I think now technology has solved that problem.
1: Okay, interesting. the fact of the matter, you
0: know, the fact of the matter is, those who say, I mean, even in my own private practice, I see people, um, you know, virtually. Whether I mean, so, you, so you're looking at saying, okay, there are, are numerous apps, whether it be um, Calm or Talkspace or, you know, other apps that are now on the market, they seem to be coming on the market like gangbusters at this point, but there are numerous apps and then also um, organizations, whether it be major hospitals, I mean, I know some here in New York um, that are doing telemedicine and telepsychiatry and tele... So what that's allowing people who are very busy, um, and these are founders, entrepreneurs, and so on and so forth, who have, you know, um, time is time is a commodity. So, so what it allows them to do is find ways to connect to professionals to talk about things. Whether and that can be done in text. That can be done through Skype or FaceTime. That can be done over the phone. And it can be done in small increments. It doesn't have to be done in the traditional Freudian sense of okay, we have to go for forty-five minutes. It can be done in multiple ways. And so I think what the sort of 21st century version of mental health is looking at is saying, how do we redefine the paradigm so that people who are busy, who are sort of starting their own business and focused on other things can get a reprieve and say, okay, I need a sounding board. I need somebody to talk to but I may need somebody to talk to in a limited period of time. And what this can do is provide me some solace, provide me some answers, really, and also create a sounding board for myself so that I'm not just listening to my own thoughts.
1: Sure. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, just briefly, but I want to dive a bit deeper into it. Why mm-hmm. should investors care about the mental health of the either the the team they invested in the companies they invest in? Why is that super important?
0: Well, I mean, I think the data has been significant as far as um, founders being fifty percent more likely to sure. be dealing with uh, mental health issues so um, you know, six six times more likely dealing with ADHD, two times more likely to be dealing with depression, suicide, and it's so the list goes on and on. So the question that any VC has to think about the moment they think about investing in a company is, okay there has to be an additional narrative and the narrative is corporate health and wellness. How do we protect our investment as well as protecting the founders so that they can be their best version of themselves. And that's what you want so that, so that they can mitigate some of the financial risk and hopefully reap the benefits. So if I was an investor, I would say, okay, one i 'm investing in not only a great idea but i 'm investing in a person
1: sure.
0: and because i 'm investing in a person there 's human frailty and because human frailty is involved, how do we mitigate that? How do we deal with a robust corporate health and what like you know corporate health strategy that can focus on increasing productivity and increasing a value and, and really be a value add to the long-term investment. Yeah. That's where I think um, executive coaching comes in. That's where I think psychotherapy comes in, you know, that are focused in sort of the business world. I mean, this is what I do for a living. So I'm very well aware of it. And what I've noticed with clients I have is that they're enormously grateful because they realize, okay, I needed this. I mean, and many of them say this, whether they're CEOs or whether they're, um, you know, upper management to people that are millennials starting out and saying, I I'm I'm, don't know where I'm going, but I want to figure it out. And I want to be able to create healthy um, habits. You know, cr- habits are very important, particularly when you're starting out in the work world.
1: Okay, give give me some examples of some habits that people should maybe break, and and maybe some habits that people should try to pick up.
0: Yeah, I mean, sleeping is one. Sure. I think people should be
1: able to. Sleeping is very critical,
0: but also being able to have, um, I think a digital siesta, as okay. I like to call it, sometimes where because we are so consumed with our phones you know whether whether it's social media or otherwise um being able to find quiet time to be able to retrench regroup and be able to create um a safe space for oneself and you know whether that mean, means watching a movie Um, You know, and and it's really getting away from your phones. but if if it's reading or listening to music, something that's very common and allowing yourself to do things that are enjoyable. I think joy is something that we all need and happiness.
1: Sure.
0: You know, and finding that happiness is is really important. But being able to, I I would say disconnect from most social media, but um, again, You know, if you're finding that you want to do something that's joyful to yourself, or for yourself, rather, um, and whether that's reading or watching a movie or going for a walk, whatever it may be, find that time, because it's it's sometimes good to reconnect with oneself.
1: No, I... I And I think that's important. Sure. And how do you actually work with people, though... To maybe rediscover a past passion or or find a new hobby or or actually get them to hold themselves accountable to make sure that they do some of this stuff, because I think it's really easy for to do this stuff for a few weeks, maybe for a few months and then maybe Mm -hmm. travel or something happens and it throws off your routine and actually getting back into that routine can be really tricky. Right, I mean,
0: so what what you do, and there isn't one answer but sure. but many times at least with clients I have had, is we think about creating habits, so a lot of times we write things down, sure, we make sure we you know journaling has always been a valuable tool, so that we begin to think about, and there's also the other notion of accountability, who right. are you accountable for um so in many cases. Um, I work with, um, when I work with CEOs or C-level executives, I work with their spouses.
1: Okay. So
0: we create a sense of accountability that goes beyond them because there is this sense of almost hyper drive. I mean, I come from two parents who are type type A personalities. So I I, I knew this growing up, you know, very driven, very focused, but there always was a sense, which I learned just from osmosis was the sense of accountability and it's critical that when you're dealing with people who are in high level positions or in stressful jobs who are you accountable to and make sure that you have somebody else on your team it's again it's sort of creating a team that is part of your personal life rather than your professional life sure. so you separate the two and in doing so you you have somebody to be accountable for or someone who is accountable to you so that you can make those decisions and also create habits and by creating habits such as you know let's say i'm going to do, be doing more exercise so on and so forth if you're both journaling or or you're both recording it whatever way that is um so that you can you can sort of maintain that habit and then also have that second layer of accountability, then it becomes a lifestyle choice. And at the end of the day, this truly is a lifestyle choice because I mean, in life, we are the sum of our choices. That's, that's it. You know, we all make choices in our lives, but that's what defines us by the choices we make. So I always tell people that I work with, you have to be very considerate of the choice you make and think about why you're making those choices.
1: No, I, I think that's that's actually really good advice. I, I think, yeah, no, that's, that's quite fascinating. So I, I want to dive a bit deeper into some of the other stuff that you write uh, for Forbes, because I think mm-hmm. I, I've been going, I've been reading um, a bunch of the articles you wrote, and they're actually really quite interesting, and I, I think people should check them out, but do you want to talk about some of the other stuff that you, you write for in Forbes, or write about in Forbes, I should say?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of, a, I I'm interested in intersectionality. I'm not, you know, that for me is, I sort of look at the the world through the lens of disability, but it's not just disability. I think that's what people sort of misconstrue. I'm interested in disability in the uh, through the you know whether you're looking at it through the lens of management or rather sort of the intersection of management strategy, creative thinking and um for example, you know one of the things I was writing about for significantly was the world of autism because sure. the significance is growing, and for those in the you know those in Silicon Valley or Silicon alley or any anyone in the sort of stem world when the when the provost of MIT says to me, sixty percent of our student body is on the spectrum, most companies, whether you're a company as large as cisco or or a Facebook or um whomever. Um, they have to rethink how their hiring practices. They have to rethink how they create a culture which, n- one, not only accepts this community, but sees the value proposition. Because these are people that are coming out of college and saying, hmm, we just happen to work differently. There is a phrase in the world called neurodiversity. People think different. They sort of perceive the world differently. And I think that's enormously valuable because it's a value add to companies because it's saying, okay, we can create new revenue streams, new products, new services, but we also have to think, how do we look at our workforce? How do we look at our corporate culture? And what do we need to think about in terms of design so that we can get the best and the brightest and retain the best and the brightest. And that's vital. Sure. And that's certainly an area that I have been working on. And I know that this particular community, which is um growing, you know, um, it, it truly is a tsunami. Um, exponentially, the STEM community needs to wisen up very quickly because it's here. Yep.
1: So how how do you work with companies and upper management to make sure they retain their top talent? Because I think, and I put myself in this boat as well, every, you know, two, three years, you're kind of bored and you're ready for something new. Right. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm top talent. I'm just saying that I think a lot of people, no matter how good or bad or other they are at their job, after a couple of years, they're kind of itching to move on.
0: hmm Well, I think it's interesting. You know, one of the things that we've noticed about those within the larger disability community mm-hmm. is that the retention levels are much higher. Okay. And that they don't switch jobs as, as often. But that doesn't mean that that's not possible. So sure. it's a question of how do, how do companies redefine their onboarding programs? How do companies rethink... Um, their design model. I mean, uh, companies like Microsoft, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, um, SAP, you know, they created the, uh, um, well, aside from Goldman, but Goldman sort of has come on board more recently, but um, there is something called the autism playbook, um, which they've been thinking there was, you know, a bunch of companies, including Ford Motor Company, um, who said, okay, we are going to sort of have a working group and think about what we need to look at as far as neurodiversity is concerned and specifically the autism community in terms of hiring practices, retention, and developing a corporate culture so that we can not only recruit, um, but also retain a very valued workforce that will enhance our brands and our companies. For the future, so uh, what they have done is really they've designed a playbook, which looks at their strategic w- ways of developing um, a new brand of hiring practices, a new brand of um, retention, and thinking about ERGs, which are employment resource groups, and how that is yeah that is really critical, but the focus is thinking about this community as a value added resource and an untapped talent pool that is absolutely needed um for stem jobs
1: no i that's interesting yeah no i i think i i think the challenge is and you can correct me if i'm wrong is in big companies they have the ability to come up with these and and recruit different types of people with all different types of skill sets and backgrounds and diversity, uh-huh. but how does that work with maybe smaller companies or, or a startup? Because it's going to yeah. be challenging to like, I'm not saying they, that they don't want to have all this inclusion and diversity. Cause I think a lot of times they do, but they might not have the time or resources to actually hire different types of people just because of they don't have the time, money, or resources. Have you found that, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, that? I mean, and I
0: and I'm beginning to work with a lot of startups and a lot of sort of early stage, you know, I guess earlier stage companies because they say, okay, how do we do this? And I say, one of the things you have to understand is you have to understand the culture of your organization. What are you developing? Right. How do we develop a strategy that works for you? It's not one size fits all. One of the, the sort of criticisms of something like the Autism Playbook is, okay, it, this is wonderful, but it doesn't fit us. And how can we fit? How do we create something that is valuable? And actually, how do we grow it as we grow? Because I think that I think yeah, is even more important sure. because you want to be able to say, okay, let's plant the seed. Once we've planted the seed and we, and then we sort of create strategies on a case-by-case basis, sure. then we can implement strategies as we go along that make sense for our organization and for the culture of our organization because you want to be malleable and you want to be able to be limber enough to move as the company grows. And also think about okay what are our needs sure. you know you have to do a needs assessment all the time and so what ends up happening at least on that level is it's 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 a it's a struggle it's a push and a pull but then we have to say okay well we have to understand what's the value add, what's the value add, and where does this help us um in terms of the long term it's a long game and sure. there isn't a an answer because we're really truly beginning this process.
1: No, sure. And I also think though too, is if you take kind of steps early on in the company, maybe when you're under five employees, and say maybe the yep. eighth or tenth employee, we're going to try to recruit in. You know, I with whatever that is, maybe from a different culture or background or, or whatever it is, that it's earlier to. It's probably easier when you have less employees, and then, as you get bigger, you kind of reiterate and and add things and modify things instead of being a hundred people and trying to implement something right Do you agree right with that? And,
0: right absolutely and and the other thing is let's say a company you know a tech company and we're just using that for example, sure. you know the government contracts so there's a government agency called the office for federal contract um Contract compliance. The OFCCP. Now, under the OFCCP, there is a mandate stated that their goal is to hire organizations that have that are at least government contractors, where they're saying three to twelve percent of, of the people employed are those with disabilities. Now, what's important about that is you're talking about multi-million dollar contracts that are available through go- the government. Now there are 200, oh, I think actually maybe even closer to um, 350,000 government contractors in the United States. Okay. I, I mean, I've read between 250 and 500,000, but I'm guessing I'm going to go conservatively somewhere in the middle. Um, the importance of that is what they are trying to do is establish um you know a in understanding that it is important that government contractors let alone federal agencies let me sort of put that aside but government contractors should be hiring people who are of diverse backgrounds because what they say is it is important to them and so what they're doing is setting a standard right and this was originally put in place during the Obama administration and it is still there on, now so and it will be there beyond you know this administration into future administrations because this is something that they believe it is important
1: right okay interesting So, and it's important for businesses to think like this no I 100% agree with you I, yeah I think and it seems to me that it, it, it's not where it needs to be but it is, it is growing and more and more companies are thinking about it. Is, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Okay.
0: Yes, that's a very true statement. I mean, I think companies are really thinking about it. For me, why I look at disability, I mean, you know, I think it, it, to me it's the essence of diversity. It runs across race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic, sexual orientation, and it's the only minority group anyone can join at any time. And that's what makes it unique because it is so diverse. You can look at diversity and inclusion through this lens because it, t- you, it touches everybody. So you can, by definition, really look at the human experience sure. through this. And so it is critically important that we sort of say, okay, how to? and this isn't about just being touchy feeling. You know, that's the sure. one thing that I always try and hammer home. This is a business decision and it should be part of your corporate strategy rather than saying, okay, this is just about corporate social responsibility. No, this is much more than that.
1: Well, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that if you're trying to build a product, whether it's physical or digital or both, the more Mm -hmm. people you have with different backgrounds and diversity and, and, um, disabilities and, and just everywhere on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. giving their input on your product and or service, it can only be better. It's not going to make it worse. Like if anything, it's going to make you stand out above the competition because if you're selling a product or service to a global market, why wouldn't you want as many people as possible with their different backgrounds and angles trying to help the company solve the problems that they're trying to solve? Because you're going to help and potentially get the most amount of clients because of that. Do you agree? It is a
0: competitive advantage. Sure. Uh, plain and simple. There is no way of putting, that, putting this otherwise. It is a competitive advantage. And in creating something that reaches the largest skew of an audience is vital. It's just vital. So I think at the end of the day, um, if you and the other reason is you don't want groupthink. You want sure. people who come from different backgrounds and different ways of thinking. You know, I think in some ways you can sort of quote from, you know, Doris Kern Goodwin's book, I'm A Team of Rivals you know when lincoln came into the white into the white house he wanted people from different points of views and different backgrounds to say talk to me tell me why i'm wrong tell me sure. your criticisms tell me otherwise and, and obama sort of certainly took that mantle um, in a lot of ways but i think it's important for any founder to have a team of rivals and say okay what do you think? Tell me why I'm wrong? What am I missing? Where What perspectives are you coming from so that you can make whether it's a physical product or a digital product just better? Sure. Better for the consumer, because you have to think about who is the end user. And if you really are, I think, have the forethought. To think about an end user can be almost anyone yes you have products that are specifically made for target markets but if you think about it and you want to create something that has value to all you want to have differing voices you want to have a diversity of thoughts sure. it only makes it better in the long run
1: yeah and then being able to understand where other people are coming from right and i think The Mm -hmm. simplest example that I've ever heard, and I've said it a few times on the show before, is something as simple as the colors of red, white, and blue. I think in certain parts of the world, people would be like, that's America. And in other parts of the world, people might be like, well, that's France, right? And just something as simple as that, three colors, could mean different things. Or another good one I've heard is you take a, a boat of people. Some people say, oh, those people are on holidays. Other people say those are refugees and that's two quite different opinions based on the same photo right like and so just based on where you're from and your background you could have a totally different opinion on you know something as simple as three colors or or people in a boat right like it's it's interesting right. to me right no it's very true so it's very true you do a bunch of speaking engagements What do Mm -hmm. you typically like to talk about? Uh, Is it a lot of the stuff we talked about today? Is there other things? Or or what do you usually like to talk about?
0: I mean, it's a lot of it is the stuff we've talked about today and understanding disability as a sort of new business narrative. I talk about my own personal story. Sure. Um, And then a lot of it, you know, again, as I always say, there's a saying that anthropologists have. I'm the professional stranger. So I come into organizations and and sort of ask what their needs are. Um, So a lot of also what I do is to develop customized speaking engagements based on my expertise that have value to that organization. So one of the things I always like to do is to whether to meet with an organization and say, okay, first of all, why, why did you bring me here and what are your needs? Because if you're able to sort of create something that has value, Um, that is important. I mean, a lot of people come in to sort of say, can you talk about disability issues in general? But I say to them, yes, I absolutely can. But I think it's more important to think about disability through a lens and through the lens of business to understand why this is a value proposition, not only the community, but more importantly, this is an, this is a community that is now exceeded the size of China. Yeah. You know, of, it's, sure. yeah, it's one billion people with a, with a purchasing power of eight trillion dollars. Now, this yeah. is reported by the World Bank and the International Labor Organization, amongst others. So the studies that have been done are out there. The data is out there to be seen publicly. I'm not making this up, but it's real. And if you look at just in the United States, you AARP says, look, six, you know, we have... um. Forty plus million members, and se- or close to seventy percent of them will be dealing with some form of disability in their lifetime. And one of the big areas of technology that's sort of opening up is silver tech, you know, or aging in place. Sure. So the markets
1: themselves
0: are opening up. The, this this community is opening up. I mean, obviously the mental health pieces are coming out, and I'm writing about that, you know, shortly. But as far as speaking. There is a lot on on the docket here, and so I want to be able to not only talk about diversity and inclusion and just general disability stuff, but to understand the future and That for me is incredibly important to think about what do we need to look for going forward, and how do companies how are companies able to profit but also think about creating a future. That will change lives and enhance people's quality of life. It's a win win for everybody.
1: No, I 100% agree with you. But we're coming to the end of the show. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and any other links you want to mention. Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, they can, you know, go. My website is com, and then. I, you can always go to the Forbes website, and I am under sort of the leadership banner, which is, and then under the diversity inclusion. But you can so, certainly look up my name and Forbes, and it comes up. But the website is www.jcoffmanconsulting, and that's where I am.
1: Perfect, Jonathan. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And have a good rest of your day, man.
0: You too. Thank you so
1: much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at ElectricMantra.com and keep building the future.